0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, October 10th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, And are you like me? Do you have that Facebook friend request from former President George W. Bush just waiting in your inbox and you don't know what to do? It's a conundrum. I mean Ellen. Ellen DeGeneres, she had some good advice. Maybe you heard about it. During the game they showed a shot of George and me laughing together and uh, so people were upset. They thought, why is a gay Hollywood liberal sitting next to a conservative Republican president? Didn't even notice I'm holding the brand new iPhone 11 and um... <laughs> But a lot of people were mad, and they did what people do when they're mad. They tweet. And, uh, but here's one tweet that I loved. This uh, person says, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again.
1: And, um, exactly.
0: Here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. And from this apparently non-controversial opinion, you'll never guess what arose. It was controversy. Mark Ruffalo... Doe-eyed Hulk tweeted, "Sorry, until George W. Bush is brought to justice for the crimes of the Iraq War, including American-led torture, Iraqi deaths and displacement, and the deep scars, emotional and otherwise, inflicted on our military that served his folly, we can't even begin to talk about kindness." That got 380,000 likes. Somewhere, Dick Cheney is sadly taking out his birthday invite list and crossing off Mark Ruffalo. Damn, he's thinking it'll have to be Ferrigno again. What this debate, that it became a debate, what it tells us is less than the stated premise. The stated premise being, be nice to people, even people you disagree with. And it tells us more about the limits of analogizing our own experience from the experience of celebrities Now, we've always had celebrities, but now they're omnipresent and more than any other time in human history, they dominate the conversation, they dominate the discourse, they define the terms. But this debate is very hard, if it starts from the level of celebrity, to take it down to the level of regular human. Here's what I mean. Everyone who agreed with Ellen went through this mental process. They thought about a person in their regular life— who they might disagree with. And they said, "Yes, that applies to me. Mavis and I have differing opinions on political matters, but yet I like Mavis." And the conclusion in that case was made on the plane of the personal. But everyone who disagreed with Ellen and agreed with Mark Ruffalo specifically thought about George W. Bush. The disqualifier was the war crimes. Now the problem is Mavis didn't commit actual war crimes. Now in my particular case, it's a little complicated because Mavis actually is the alias of Radovan Karadzic, And yeah, the Hague says he committed war crimes, but follow me here. Ellen's statement either makes sense or doesn't make sense. If our mental plane is pitched to, should I forgive and be friends with George W. Bush? Or should I take this lesson and forgive and be friends with people who I know in my personal life? So what I'm saying is the next time you're invited to Jerry Jones's box, to sit next to George W. Bush, you should not do it. Not because of George W. Bush, but because of Jerry Jones. Because he's friends with Chris Christie, and you got to draw the line somewhere. On the show today, I spiel about the LGBTQ forum on CNN. Lots of letters there. Will there be lots of differences in policy? But first, today Slate is launching an important new initiative called Who Counts? Over the next 13 months, Slate's reporters and podcasters, mm-hmm, this guy, will be investigating who counts in the voting booth, who counts as an American, whose money counts in the democratic process, and whose doesn't. I got to say everyone's money counts, it's just that some people have a lot more of it than others. The Gist's contribution, among our contributions, I assume, but our first contribution right now, right here, is a guest I've wanted to have on for quite a while. He ran the effort to pass Florida ballot measure number four, restoring the vote to former felons who had served their terms. It worked. It worked spectacularly so. But there are new roadblocks to making these former felons, or as Desmond Meade calls himself, these restored citizens count. Desmond Mead of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition is up next. Desmond Mead is the president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, which was founded by the Florida ACLU for former felons, or as Desmond calls himself and others, returning citizens. There was a great electoral win uh, on a ballot measure in Florida that Desmond was one of the spearheads of, and it was Article 4, which is restoring the right to vote for these returning citizens. What's even more impressive in the state of Florida, if you know about the electoral history of Florida, is that this measure passed by a 60% supermajority threshold. And now former felons in Florida can vote provided they weren't convicted of murder or sex crimes. But it's not that simple, because as we'll find, the Florida legislature has put in some roadblocks, including fines to prevent these constitutionally allowed citizens to exercise their franchise. Desmond Mead, thanks for coming on.
1: Hey, Mike, thank you for having me on.
0: How many Floridians now have the right to vote that didn't two years ago?
1: This is what we do now. Um, And this is based on on the research that was uh, conducted by uh, the Citizen Project, along with uh, Jeff Manz, I believe he's out of the University of of, uh, Minnesota. We believe that, uh, especially in context of uh, of of fines and fees provisions, that there are about at least eight hundred and forty thousand Floridians who are not impacted by the fines and fees, who are eligible to register to vote right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. But let me let me be very clear though. Uh, what Amendment Four did? Okay, it, uh, what Amendment Four did? was that it removed a 150-year-old Jim Crow lifetime ban um, um, from Florida. Prior to Amendment 4, anyone convicted of any felony offense lost the right to vote for life. Mm. And the only pathway or the only way a person could regain that right to vote was through the governor. And the governor didn't have to restore anyone's rights. And so uh, American citizens who have left with the only option of having to grovel at the knees of whoever in power at that time and and hope that they would show enough mercy and allow them to have the right to vote back.
0: What were the demographics, uh, the gender and racial demographics of those who were affected by the disenfranchisement
1: laws? You know, a lot of times, you know, when folks talk about felon disenfranchisement, uh, it's typically a black face that's attached to it. And I think primarily because of the disproportionate impact that the criminal justice system have had on the African-American community, which then in turn, uh, you would see a disproportionate impact as it relates to felony uh, disenfranchisement. But the, here are the real numbers. You know, um, at the time, it was 1.68 million Floridians who could not vote because of a prior 70 conviction. And out of that 1.68 million, about one-third were African Americans, right? Mm. And so what that means is that even though African Americans were disproportionately impacted by this cause, when you look at just the straight numbers, what you see was that they're like almost twice as many whites who could not vote because of a felony conviction.
0: So now I want to ask you, as an observer in 2018, I looked at that, I saw what the polling was on Amendment 4, but I also saw what the polling was for Andrew Gillum. And then afterwards, we found out that many forces were brought to bear to disenfranchise Uh, potential Gillum voters, potential Democratic voters, Black voters. Among these were ballots, absentee ballots were thrown out. There was a polling location that was literally moved inside a gated community. And if you were outside the gated community, they wouldn't let you in to vote. The only ballot scanner in St. Petersburg, a disproportionately African-American voting place, the only ballot scanner broke down. And of course, a famous infamous robocall that was actually from they are Idaho-based white supremacist group claiming to be Andrew Gillum. You add that all up, it did not seem to me, even within the realm of possibility, that Amendment 4 would get to 60%. you, You alluded to it when you gave the numbers about who was disenfranchised, and it is more white people than black people, but did it surprise you, and why do you think some of the same forces that were disenfranchising voters weren't active in the Amendment 4 fight
1: no, I wasn't surprised. I expected us to win. And one of the reasons why I expected us to win was because of the nature of our campaign. We were not a bipartisan campaign. We weren't even a nonpartisan campaign. What we were was an organic grassroots movement that welcomed and enjoyed bipartisan support. And we were able to connect with people along the lines of humanity, right, along common shared values, that we all believed in. And as a result, we were able to win in high fashion.
0: So as I sit here and think about that, I'm trying to tease out the implications of what that means. And I'm thinking of a couple things. And one is a lot of campaigns try to do that, right? Barack Obama thought he was doing that, but the people who hate him disagreed. He did win the vote, though. I wonder if... Once the the biggest strain in American politics, the thing driving it is negative partisanship. Once you attach a person, if you could invent a person who was, who, agrees with what you said 100% and try to campaign that way, it still might not work because that person's going to be a person. and You could always sully that person. It's harder to do with an idea. Maybe that's an implication of what you're saying, that there's no way to take the uplifting message of why it passed and apply it to an actual person running for office. I mean, do you think that's a fair analysis?
1: I think that's the deal with it. And in and, and thinking... You know, I, I, so one of the things was if you notice that when I said that we weren't nonpartisan or we weren't even bipartisan, right, that we were organic. And the difference is, is that with the partisan or the nonpartisan, you still lead it with politics. With the organic, you're leading with the people, right? And so I, I, the answer to your question is, is that that would be difficult to do because, you know, way we uh, conducted our campaign was we placed people over everything.
0: So everything you say is inspiring up until we get to the fines. What is the state of the law with who actually gets to vote?
1: So listen, you say everything is fine until we get to the fines. We are very excited about the current state of play right now because we are allowed to uh, and we're given the opportunity to engage with returning citizens in such a way that we have never had before in the history of Florida, right? And here's the thing. In a state where a gubernatorial race is decided by 30,000 votes, congressional race by fifteen, sixteen thousand, 16,000, and presidentials are typically 100,000, sometimes less votes in the state of Florida. We have over 800 thousand people who can register to vote right now. So if you look at the numbers, we already cover the gaps, right? But then there's another 560,000 which this legislation allows us to go to the courts and use the court to remove those financial barriers so they too can also register the vote. Mm -hmm. So now we have an opportunity to engage with people who maybe traditionally would not be uh, enthusiastic about about civic engagement, but now have an opportunity to have their voice heard.
0: So there is a federal hearing going on right now about the mess, though, created by the uh, legislator's bill making former felons pay their fines. What's the state of that?
1: Well, there was so, let, let me be very clear, there was uh, always some financial obligations that was attached to completion of sentence. Mm-hmm. So the the real debate, Uh, 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 and, and a lot of folks have lost sight of, was about what constituted completion of sentence. Because Amendment 4 created three conditions that one had to meet before it could trigger the right to vote. And those three conditions were, number one, couldn't be convicted of murder. Number two, couldn't be convicted of a felony sexual offense. And number three, they must have fully completed the sentence as ordered by a judge along with paying restitution. The debate is, is what constitutes a completion of sentence, right? And does it include financial obligations? And if it does, what are those financial obligations?
0: Now, the Florida clerks and controllers put out a report that said over a billion dollars in felony fines were issued between 2013 and 2018, and less than 20% of that money was paid back. So if you do the math about the million enfranchised people and the billion dollars worth of fines, it could be, you know, that's $1,000 a person. That's that's quite a steep hurdle.
1: No, nah, but see, the problem is, is that that creates a bad illusion. Well, let's talk about for instance, Orange County, right? Where you have, you may have, and, and and this is a rough estimate. What we do know is that majority of the money, or the money that's owed to the court system, the overwhelming majority of it is owed in restitution. And we know that, like for instance, in in a lot of these counties, that restitution only accounts for four percent of the cases. And so, in like for instance, Orange County, where four percent of the case of our restitution, what we find is there's $922 million that's owed. And guess who owes that? You no, know, 99% of that money is owed by white men. And then the average uh, white person owes about 82000 But when you look at the average black person, it owes about three $400. Now, the reason why I say those numbers, because it's very important to understand, because when we look at the reality of it, you can have 10... Poor people, or or whatever, have some low level offenses that they're convicted of. Yeah. Nine times out of ten, they're not even getting any. There's no restitution, and if there's a fine, say it's a five hundred dollar fine, right? But then you will have one person, John, the yeah. banker from Wells Fargo, uh-huh. who just got convicted of embezzling <laughs> forty million dollars.
0: So you're saying to, you're saying Tony Montana is throwing off the average. <laughs>
1: There you, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, and the Tony Montana is not the typical crime that he's committing. It's right. most, mainly a white collar crime.
0: Your organization is running a uh, fund, and the fundraising goal is two point seven. And so far, you've raised only nine percent, two hundred fifty five. If you get the two point seven, you know what? Do you have any thumbnail percent of or number of people that you will re-enfranchise or enfranchise with that amount of money?
1: That is a great question. And what we do know, for instance, I can tell you that in certain counties where you have individuals that might owe $257, right? And that seems to be the medium, Mm -hmm. right? Then there's a certain amount of people that we can get with the, uh, the 3 million. Well, I think it's $3 million. That's our goal. But what we're doing is that we're looking to even help subsidize. And so, what that means is that if if someone you know have a bill of uh $500 and 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 say they can come up with 250 then we'll cover that 250 mm-hmm. you know if they can if they can't cover that 250 then maybe it's a case where we do take the 500 it's really on a case by case basis we are rolling this thing out in November next month we're actually launching a statewide tour throughout every part of Florida we're going to be stopping and helping people pay their fines. We're going to be stopping and helping people um, appear before the courts to get their sentence modified. Uh, and we're going to be registering people to vote.
0: So the last thing I'll do is, as I thank you, is to say that this is a, uh, by means of disclosure and by means of endorsement, on August 9th, so that's many months ago, when I first heard about this, I tweeted, I've never knowingly donated to a politician, but i I would, as laid out by my colleague, Ben mathis Lilly, who wrote about your efforts, I would donate to pay off the fines accrued by Florida ex-felons, sorry, I used that term, but I did, which keep them from voting. And in fact, I did, and I linked to it, because it does seem to me that if you want to affect some sort of change and some sort of justice, there are a lot of really roundabout political donations that... Maybe if I give to this candidate, maybe they'll use it for the right TV ad, and maybe that will correctly influence the state. Or you could just give directly to people in Florida to let them vote, people who should be able to vote. It seems like as big a political non-brainer in terms of doing what's right and having an impact as I could think of. So that's an endorsement and a disclosure.
1: Well, I tell you what, I really do appreciate that. And I know that there are tons of people... In, in the state of florida that that appreciate that the thinking that went behind that and your donation I
0: get fifty I bucks do, so let's I not let's not name you. a plaque after me yet you know let's not yeah. let's not let's not put a plaque on a bench well, after me just yet yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we we'll start getting your measurements for a buck you know yeah please um, please <laughs> but, no but seriously um i believe that there is no greater investment than an investment in people, right? The people. And, and you know, political candidates, they're fine and dandy, but at the end of the day, they're just an individual. You know, on election night, uh, November 2018, we showed that the people are more powerful, right? And when you rally around the people, you do more for our country than you could ever imagine, right? And so being able to uh, uh, do something that allow an American citizen to be civically engaged provides uh, dividends beyond just that election.
0: Desmond Mead is a voting rights activist, the executive director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. You could find him on the Time Magazine 2019 list of 100 most influential people in an entry written by Stacey Abrams. Great to talk to you, Desmond.
1: All right. Thank you so much, man
0: and now the spiel did you hear it's tonight it's on cnn and it is on nine candidates one night one stage biden warren budaj edge harris booker o'rourke klobuchar steyer castro of cnn presidential town hall equality in america thursday night 7:30 eastern only on cnn Okay, that equality in America, which can be gleaned from the logo, the rainbow flag and the yellow equal sign on the blue background. The equality is about LGBTQ rights. Second, yes, one night, one stage. True, there is but one stage, but they will all be on it at separate times. The DNC mandates that If more than one candidate is on a stage at once, it counts as a debate and only the DNC can conduct debates. So I would say that's kind of misleading. Third thing for an LGBTQ event, that uh, announcer guy is kind of aggro, right? Kind of heteronormative. Just saying. The LGBTQ town hall is fine. I, for one, am on tenterhooks to wait to see what Tom Steyer says about LGBTQ policies. That is a half hour of television. I'll be tivoing for sure. And I definitely look forward to electing a president whose greatest accomplishment for LGBTQ rights was something other than remembering all the letters therein. As your president, I will
1: do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression
0: of a hateful foreign ideology. Believe me. As far as the hateful domestic ideology, Trump has embodied it. He has attempted to drum trans people out of the military. He has made it harder for gay couples to adopt. He granted waivers or he's trying to grant waivers for any company that contracts with the federal government that wants to discriminate against gay people because of, quote, religious beliefs. I was actually trying to remember all the other big ones, all the other big anti-gay initiatives that Trump has championed. So I went to the uh, GLAD site. It's it's not just the big ones, though. It's the so many annoying, small indignities that his administration has committed to. So uh, a few months ago, they announced a new policy stating transgender Americans would not be guaranteed health care protections under the ACA. That was great. Same day. They announced plans to implement a new policy which would allow adoption agencies to deny LGBTQ couples the ability to adopt based on religious exemptions, doing the Lord's work there. A couple weeks later, the Trump administration denied all U.S. embassy buildings from flying the historic LGBTQ pride flag on embassy flagpoles in honor of LGBTQ pride month. And just a few days ago, CNN reported that the Federal Highway Administration sent a letter to members of the Ames, Iowa City Council, asking the city to remove pro-LGBTQ-themed crosswalks, citing so-called federal traffic control standards. You know, someone should tell Trump that the rainbow crosswalk is a lot better than the usual one, because you realize the usual one, the black and white one, is half black, right? So maybe he'll come off that stance. Any alternative to Trump is a lot better, and there seems to be no Democratic candidate who wouldn't be, to my mind, excellent on LGBTQ issues. I do note that Andrew Yang and Bernie Sanders are skipping this forum. They claim scheduling issues, which would be acceptable in Sanders' case. Understandable. He's getting over a heart attack. But last month in Iowa, there was another gay rights forum. And guess who were the only two big candidates who skipped that one were? Yang and Bernie. Hmm. So this CNN forum... Or maybe more, the just the prominence of these issues have prompted a few of the candidates to issue plans. Guess who did a big one? Elizabeth Warren. She has a plan for that. Here was Vox's headline about her plans and Pete Buttigieg's plan. LGBTQ rights hang in the balance at the Supreme Court. Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg just released plans to defend them. Subhead: The plans include major anti-discrimination legislation but not a promise to decriminalize sex work. All right, I shall now read verbatim from Elizabeth Warren's plan. I'm also open to decriminalizing sex work. Sex workers, like all workers, deserve autonomy and are particularly vulnerable to physical and financial abuse and hardship. I guess that being open to it was not pure or committed enough for Vox. Buttigieg, on the other hand, has an 18-page plan called Becoming Whole a new era for LGBTQ plus Americans. He makes every pledge I have ever considered in support of the LGBTQ community, along with several others I hadn't even thought of. So some of the things that I considered are to pass the Equality Act, no discrimination, and to ensure that every federal agency identifies discrimination against queer people and vigorously uses all available tools to stop it. Thought of that, but he goes further expand the representation of LGBTQ plus people and history in our national park system. Sure, why not? Name San Francisco's Black Cat Tavern a national monument. You have to say my research indicates that the Black Cat Tavern is in LA in the Black Cat Cafe or bar. That was the famous gay rights location in San Francisco. Hasn't been open since 1963. You have to understand a lot of the Buttigieg speak to really understand the plan. Like take this part, Advance initiatives that support LGBTQ plus owned businesses and entrepreneurs. Pete's Walker Lewis initiative, part of his Douglas plan, aims to triple the number of entrepreneurs from underrepresented backgrounds within 10 years. The Douglas plan? He's naming plans after Hannah Gadsby's new routine. No, 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 no. Here is the translation. That's why I've put together the Douglas Plan. The Douglas Plan aims to provide the scale and scope that is necessary for true nationwide restorative justice. All right, still doesn't tell us who Douglas is. It's Frederick Douglass, And who's the Walker Lewis there? Oh, black business pioneers, Madam C.J. Walker and Reginald Lewis. By the way, crazy fact about America's first black female millionaire and first African-American to build a billion-dollar company They died at 51 and 50, respectively. Wow. But guess what? This isn't depressing facts about African-American entrepreneurs. It's uplifting policies for the LGBTQ community. And I've got to say that the Democratic candidates, all of them, get an A to A-plus from me. Your mileage may vary. Maybe you are among the voters who faults Elizabeth Warren for being open to, but not promising to, decriminalize sex work. Damn it, I want a candidate who promises things beyond the power of the presidency. Oh, really? You want that candidate? Because I demand that candidate, therefore I am the puristist. What is the tension though? Why am I bringing this up? You may want to know. Well, because I was thinking about statements like this. This was Mike Murphy from the Political Hacks on Tap podcast.
1: The big question, this is where I really agree with you, is right now the Democratic- um, finally. Yeah, uh, (laughs) the Democrats are arguing like the biggest problem they've got is to find a candidate who can take Alameda County and San Francisco up to 89% from 87. (laughs) If they don't start cracking the kind of voters that they send the message to that we hate you, which is non-college educated white men and women who are swinging hammers in places like Detroit, Michigan, where I came from, the distribution of it, they can run it up, they can win by 3.3 million. They can add 400,000 to Hillary's number and still lose. So the question is, will they understand that what makes them feel good about them, primary voter narcissism, and hoping, well, we we got a new song here. We got Will I Am is back. Uh, <laughs> that's not enough. They got to get into Trump land and trim them. And I think it is possible.
0: Yes, Murphy's a Republican, and also yes, I favor all these policies the candidates will be talking about tonight. But CNN has had only one themed town hall, and that was about the environment. Then before we get to foreign policy, the military deindustrialization, we're going to LGBTQ rights. Okay, look, I know there's a year before the election, but it's not always easy to get all the candidates, all the candidates except Yang and Bernie on the same stage. Well, not the same stage, but at least on one stage on the same night, I've looked at many years worth of polls about what issues Americans think are the most important issues, and I have never seen LGBTQ issues. It doesn't mean they're not important, but it means if candidates, Democratic candidates, want to talk to and appeal to the voters who might make them president, there are many, many other things that the voters are saying are higher priority. Now, it can be true. It is true that LGBTQ issues aren't the top priority. But it can also be true and is true that it is correct and proper for our candidates to have good policies and stances on LGBTQ issues. But I do think that you have only so many nights to focus the voters on issues, to occupy the candidates on issues, and which issues you talk about matter. I don't think that CNN is going to have time And I don't think they're going to have access to all these candidates to talk about opioids, to talk about jobs, to talk about foreign wars. I don't think they're going to have town halls on all those things. And the order of what you talk about does say something about the priorities of the party. I do want to be clear. Please don't mistake what I'm saying. I think LGBTQ issues are really important. And I also acknowledge that talking about one thing that's important doesn't mean you can't talk about other things that are important. But the attention of voters is a finite resource. And this is the winnowing phase of the campaign. And I don't think there's much of a policy difference among the candidates. I don't see how anyone will be able to say, oh, I voted for or chose that candidate over this one because of their LGBTQ stances. Though I do wonder if Tom Steyer has a plan to queer the forests. Anyway, tonight, I will be immersed in gay content. But not on CNN, on ESPN. It is the last game of the WNBA Finals. Elena Deladon, reigning MVP, whose wife will be rooting for her, faces the Connecticut Sun, coached by Kurt Miller, the first openly gay male coach of a professional sports team in the U.S. These two teams meet in the game's biggest stage, and what's more, they'll be on the stage at the same time. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader doesn't favor the term ex-Georgian. He prefers restored guy who speaks at a normal rate. Christina DeJosa, another producer of The Gist. Did I mention that's what Daniel does? That's why I was talking about him. Anyway, Christina DeJosa rejects the term ex-Sailor Moon fanatic. She prefers the term current Sailor Moon fanatic. The gist. You know, I would be friends with George W. Bush just to see what clever nickname he'd give me. Pesky. I bet he'd call me Pesky. Hey, Pesky. Heh, heh, heh. Peru Peru, and thanks for listening.